Today we continue our study in the New Testament letter that the Apostle Peter wrote in his day to that much persecuted church of believers as he seeks to encourage them and calls them to stand strong and fast in their faith. You may be with us this morning for the first time, and others of you have been coming for some time, and we have been studying this epistle for quite a while, but still we have only come to 1 Peter chapter 3. We are in no big hurry to rush through any portion of God's word. So we are going uh, to go again, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this very important and precious portion of God's word. So I ask you to turn to 1 Peter and chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Moments from now, we'll be reading together, beginning at verse 13 through 18. I must say, beloved, that one of the challenges of expository preaching, that is going verse by verse, is keeping each new collection of verses in their wider context. And so... That is why I often must ask you, as good students of the Word, to bear with some review of our previous studies, or at least to glance back over your shoulder to those things that Peter has already said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, right on up to this point in time. Now, the fact is, there's much about the next six verses before us here in chapter 3, that cannot be fully appreciated or even acted upon appropriately without a knowledge of that foundation of truth that has already been laid out by the Apostle Peter in the first verses even of the first chapter. So I remind you of that, even as I ask you now to follow along in hearing verses 13 through 18 of chapter 3. Be mindful that these words of encouragement, as well as words of command, have their roots in the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace so gloriously proclaimed by Peter in all of those previous verses. Beloved, I would go so far as to say... And I will belabor this principle for a moment. I think it needs to be said again and again. I would go so far as to say, unless you as a professing child of God can perceive every New Testament command for what it really is. And it is this, every command of Scripture for the believer is a heavenly Father's wise counsel and means of caring grace to his children. God never commands his children just to prove his authority or his lordship over them. This is always a heavenly father 
wanting the very best. After all, he has invested the very blood of his only begotten son to redeem you. Why would he not want to also freely give you everything? But it all comes, all that we need, by the same way Christ came. It is the grace of God. Now, not understanding that, like too many, you will default to some other view of the Christian life. I think especially when you read the commands of the Bible. It may, for example, be the danger of falling under law or law performance instead of grace dependency. You can imagine that there's quite a world of difference between the two. How do you view your Christian life? Are you under the law performance of the commands of Scripture? Or are you living a life by grace with full dependency upon what only God can do in and through you? To fall under that law performance, and it seems to be our sinful default system is to practice what some would call a legalism. Many people just think that the Christian life is defined by the list of do's and don'ts. And it took me some years growing up in a church where I got the message that being a good Christian was having the right list of the do's and the don'ts. It took me a while to discover, quite honestly, that I actually don't do the do's while all too often yielding to the don'ts. And I want to say, as happened to be in my case in the course of my coming to a better understanding of grace itself, is that such sincere believers are often caught in that misconception. They are such that are usually very discouraged or even defeated Christians. Because to live under a law performance system is to always fall short and wonder, am I good enough yet? There's another danger with that and not comprehending the true grace of God, not only for our salvation, but for pursuing holiness. The less sincere, I guess I could call them, the less sincere professing believer may indulge in a kind of grace-less judgmentalism, even as they are given to some form of self-righteousness. Such folks do not understand grace. In fact, it might be good from time to time to try to define what self-righteousness is, not in the life of some Pharisee like Paul before his conversion, but what does self-righteousness look like here? in the body of Christ at any given time. I like this definition. Self-righteousness is being more aware of and irritated by the sins of others than you are conscious of and grieved by your own sins. When I read that, and I forget whose definition it is, I thought that's a keeper. Self-righteousness is being more aware of and irritated by the sins of others than you are conscious of and grieved by your own sins. Another grace-deprived pitfall is that one may read 
What are the really wonderful ethical commands of Scripture? Sometimes we call these the Judeo-Christian values. But you can be ignoring at the same time as you study the ethics of the Bible, of of ignoring the gospel context. Again, context is everything. And if you ignore that gospel context and you're all for Judeo-Christian values, you like the principles of the Bible, you are perhaps much in danger, a great danger, of giving way to something called mere moralism. He or she is a good person, a good Christian man or woman, we may say. And it may be true, but we may be simply observing some forms of outward conformity to biblical values without keeping it in the gospel context. And I would say to you, this is perhaps one of the greater dangers of our day, a religiosity. Adapting a religious moralism. Let me tell you, that is actually one of the greatest counterfeits for the true gospel of grace. Life, by the grace of God, comes and continues to flow in and through the merits of Christ alone. It is not about our performance. It is not even that much about us. And it is all about him. When you hear the commands of Scripture, resist the tendency to fall under that law of performance. Embrace the grace of God in it. This is a loving Father pouring out grace in the lives of His children through telling them what is right and what is wrong and what is best. Now, we've been and we are still in that portion of Peter's epistle when he is instructing, even commanding, true believers, what could be more practical than this, about how to get along in every kind of interpersonal relationship. If we were to go back and review those portions, he talked about what it is like to have to go to work every day, but do so under an unjust employer. He uh, brings the issue to other relationships within the body of Christ and discusses that. And just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the relationship that could be no more intimate than that of marriage itself. And there are commands, but they are grace-saturated commands. He has been saying to us about all kinds of relationships, and we continue to look at that today, that every command concerning How we are to love one another, I say again, has its roots and draws its life-giving sustenance. That is what enables us. It draws that from the gospel itself. That God, you see, has loved us with a grace that so amazes us that our gratitude flows over into every relationship of every kind in every place. And the extreme of this is so that we are even enabled to love our enemies. And we'll never do that in our own strength. Only the child of God who allows him or herself occasionally to get so blown away by what God did in Christ for miserable old me is going to be the kind of person 
who can even rise to the level of blessing those they would otherwise count as enemies. I'll remind you, Christ died only for the ungodly. If you need to be reminded of that, you would not have the privilege or right to call yourself a Christian unless you are also ready and prepared to confess that you were an ungodly sinner. And that in your natural state of fallenness through our first father, Adam, it was the very nature and character of your mind to be at warfare with the true and living God. Paul teaches our unregenerate minds were at enmity. Totally opposed to the true God. But it's because Christ loved his enemies. Folks, that's us. That we are called to do the same. Christ, in fact, was motivated to endure the horrors of the cross, you remember, only by his sheer mercy and for the glorifying of his own grace. So this is a rather lengthy introduction, I know, to the text itself, but somehow I sense a necessary one in our day. Please see these next verses and all the ethical commands of Scripture as blossoming out of the blood-stained soil of Calvary. God's grace to us in sacrificing His Son. Now, maybe we are ready to read some of the ethical commands. Verses 13 through 18 of 1 Peter 3. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just, he the just one, dying for the unjust, that's us, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is of such weight and such helpful importance that I'm going to ask us to pray again before I go any further. Pray with me. Father, sometimes it seems a mystery to us that we can do the right thing, but suffer for it in this fallen world. In many cases, we are tempted to say with some irony, no good deed goes unpunished. 
And it's because we do live in a world that loves sin more than it loves righteousness, more than it loves you. Your son, Jesus himself, who never did anything other than that which was pleasing in your sight. He who only came here for the help of sinners and yet by the wicked hands of sinners was crucified. So it was your will. That by doing right, he did indeed suffer. Yet by those very stripes, we have been healed. How deep and wondrous the gospel of grace. May that same grace invade every fiber of our soul until we begin to love others in the same way that Christ loved us while we were yet in our sins. We're asking you through the truth of your word to make us more like Jesus. We ask in his name and for his greater glory. Amen and amen. Some of us can remember how, as kids on the playground, we used to cover up, or maybe this is only me, I guess. I don't know about you. I used to cover up my embarrassment and sometimes even some deep hurt with that little untrue ditty that goes something like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will what? Want to bet? That's not true, is it? You and I know there is a world of hurt out there. And if kids can be cruel, adults at times have perfected it to an art form. There in verse 13, and I struggled with this verse this week to be prepared to stand in this pulpit. And I'm not even still sure I've got it right. There in verse 13, Peter asks a question. Who is there to harm you? If you prove zealous for what is good. You know how I answered that when I read it and then read it again and a few more times? I answered, who is there to harm me if I prove zealous for what is good? Lord, I can tell you plenty of people. Just try it. Prove to be zealous. Really committed in every situation to that which is right and you will find trouble. Just try it. Jesus did, as I mentioned earlier, he did, and he was hung on a cross for it. Peter was zealous to do good for the glory of God. He, too, was hung on a cross upside down at that. We are called to live out our commitment to Christ in a world that is almost always intimidated by those whose works of righteousness they discover or sense are wrought in God. The fruit of the Spirit in our lives. 
Have you wondered, I have sometimes wondered, why true believers, Christians, never win many humanitarian rewards? Maybe you haven't thought about it. We're pretty good in the evangelical church of rewarding each other, (laughs) even for good works. But in the world, the pagan world you see, seems to have no problem parading the good works of unregenerate men and women. Some of the most depraved in our culture, Hollywood, will do something good with their ill-gotten gains, and the world applauds. Even Lady Gag-Gag or Gaga, whatever. We need to love her in Christ. I do. Lord's helping me there. Some of the most depraved do something good with their ill-gotten gains and the world applauds. Christians give of themselves, unnoticed by the world, some literally lay down their lives and they only get the applause of heaven. Well, not only the applause of heaven, that is the best kind. I think what Peter is doing with this rhetorical question, who is there to harm you for doing good, is sort of saying, well, in the normal course of any given week, if you do a good deed and someone doesn't discover that you're doing it because you're a Christian, you know, you may get some thanks. That's how it should be, Peter is saying. Who's there to harm you for doing good? But I think Peter is saying it to remind us that if the world was a place that made sense, that there would be no one to harm us. But you see, sin has so blinded the eyes of the willful unbelieving that there are situations where the Spirit wrought good works of true believers are no more valued than the good works of Jesus Himself. Even as Peter writes under the guidance of the Holy Spirit here, he may be recalling how Jesus addressed the unbelief of some of the most religious people in his day. On a certain day, for example, there was a mob and they were about to take up stones to kill Jesus. And here's what Jesus said. I showed you many good works From the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? I mean, who would there to be harm Jesus for doing what is right? Jesus asked the question, for which of the good works are you picking up stones? If I do not do the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, though... You do not believe me. It's almost a plea on Jesus' part. At least believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. He's saying, don't you see these good works? They're coming through me from my Father. What's your problem? Jesus, of course, knew what their problem was. At this point... John, who records that incident, records that the hateful group 
when Jesus said these words, tried to seize him. Jesus is demonstrating that no one really comes to God by being rational. No one is saved by just looking at the evidence. These may be means of grace that God will use. He says, what have I done other than good deeds? But Jesus would go on to explain, quote, they did not believe because he said, you are not of my sheep. You see, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Do you see that even apart from the grace of God, we would never even appreciate the best of Jesus works on earth. And so with Jesus, who's always the best example of spiritual dynamics operating in a sinful world, we too, Peter would say, we should not be surprised when the unreasonable and irrational happens. That, as he puts it in verse 14. Look there at verse 14. He says, but even if... Now, actually, that same Greek word could be translated, even since you suffer. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, and then Jesus or Peter's records this, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. This is one of those blessings that I would never choose for myself. I don't know about you. To be persecuted is a blessing. If what you're being persecuted about is that your works and your deeds have been wrought in God himself. You see, being abused for righteous reasons, is that really a blessing? Peter says it is. And I say with him, it is a blessing because it gives us great assurance that we really are followers of Christ. The next time you choose the right, you do the good thing, and you discover that someone doesn't quite appreciate it and abuse you perhaps for it, you can say, hallelujah, like we sang today, I must be a child of the king. They did the same thing to Jesus. Jesus said, in this, if this world hates you at any point, you need to understand it hated me first. It is detected by the sinner. Blind as they are, they know this much. That the good we do as his children is actually God's work in us. And that is what the world hates. I dare say an immoral, unregenerate man or woman can do some philanthropic work and get a building named after himself. A true believer doing the same good work may get nothing but suspicion and even outright condemnation. You say, this just doesn't make sense. No, I know. There's nothing more irrational than to be bound in sinful blindness. You see, anyone can get in trouble for doing something wrong. And may I add, especially Christians 
That's why he says in the text we ought to keep a very good conscience in these things. Anyone, preachers, lay people alike, we know it, it's often in the news. Anyone can get in trouble for doing the wrong thing. But isn't it interesting, only true believers encounter trouble for doing what is right. Glance forward to verse 17, where Peter says, it is better. And then this phrase, if if God should will it so. I'm so glad that's there because as I read it, I thought, look at that. No one can abuse a child of God without God's permission and his ultimate blessing. Right? It's if God should will it so. It is better if God should will it so. If God should will that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Without any irreverence to the Holy Scriptures, I also read that and I thought, that's one of those duh statements. doesn't require a paragraph of my exposition, does it? If you suffer because you've blown it or you've done something wrong... All you can do is ask God's forgiveness and someone else's and an apology to someone else if that's what's required. But this matter of suffering for doing what is right, that has to do with the will of God. Only a Christian can get in trouble for doing what is right. And Christians, it seems, are always in trouble of some kind. It's our badge of honor, frankly. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. The Apostle Paul told the young pastor Timothy that, quote, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus, guess what, will suffer. You say, well, I haven't experienced too much of this form of abuse or persecution or people saying things about me or throwing sticks and stones and The only part of my sermon that I can say about that, if this is none of your experience ever and hasn't been for a long time, and yet you have professed Christ. If all who pursue true godliness in Christ Jesus are going to suffer, I hope you have the blessing, as Peter called it, of knowing of a time, hopefully not so long ago, or maybe in the near future, the honor of suffering some Injustice in a fallen world and only because you are a true follower of God. It's one of the evidences of our truly being born again. You really want to know you're a Christian? Well, let me ask you, how much trouble do you have in your life? It may just be that you're pursuing the godliness to which God calls us. Sticks and stones or even the barbed arrows of someone's poisoned tongue. I want us to employ... Against those things, the biblical strategy that Peter lays out in this kind of spiritual warfare. Thank the Lord this isn't going on every single day in our lives. By the way, it is going on every single day in some believers' lives in some parts of the world. Verse 14, number one, take your stand, hold your ground. And Peter is saying, do not cave in to the intimidation of unbelievers. You look at verse 14. And here Jesus 
say in the same way as Peter, let not your heart be troubled. Peter takes heart himself from the example of the prophets of old. In particular, in that verse, you notice the capital letters. Is it that way in your English Bible? He borrows the exact words of the prophet Isaiah, where God says to that persecuted servant, Isaiah, it's in uh, chapter 8 of that uh, prophecy, do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled. God, you see, has told Isaiah... In that context, we're not taking the time to go back to the Isaiah passage, but it's there in chapter 8. You can read it for yourself. God had told Isaiah to warn the people of impending judgment. He warned them. That's a preacher's task. That was his good work. To pass along the very Word of God. That's why the prophets of old would begin their dangerous speeches with the phrase, Thus saith the Lord. They knew what would follow. And sure enough, Isaiah's reward for faithfulness in delivering God's message was this, that the people rose up against the messenger in a frightful way. But God said, do not be intimidated. Basically, take your stand, Isaiah. Hold your ground. Do not fear them, Isaiah. In fact, God said to Isaiah, you only need to fear me, not men. Now listen carefully, because we didn't turn there. Isaiah 8.12, that Peter's quoting, has also in it God's saying to his frightened, intimidated prophet, I, Jehovah, shall become your, I love this, your sanctuary. Your set-apart place of worship. And safety. To which Isaiah responds in verse 17 of Isaiah 8 I will wait for the Lord. I will even look eagerly for him. That's to be our heart response to the intimidations of the ungodly who detect that even our good deeds are somehow wrought in the God they hate, we are to run to the sanctuary. You see, when a fallen world of wicked sinners hurls its sticks and stones, its intimidations, its slanders, you flee. Now, Peter says, not to the tabernacle or temple of the Old Testament, such as in Isaiah's day, but now you flee to the true sanctuary, the sanctuary of your heart, he says. Sanctify the Lord in your heart. Run to the place where He dwells, where Christ, by His Holy Spirit, dwells in you, in the sanctuary of your heart. And do as Isaiah said. Remind yourself that He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is your rock of defense. Then, and only then, are you and I ready to make our defense. Our defense. Part 2 of verse 15. See what it says? Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. What if it were the case 
that every time one of God's faithful children are being intimidated by the world, that such believer responds with a peaceful, reverential, respectful response rooted in this hope. How can you be attacked and handle it so well in a Christ-honoring way that it leads even the enemies of the gospel to say, what's with you? They'll do that eventually, some. And you say, oh, there's a sanctuary of the heart. And every time I feel the intimidation of the world, I run to where he is and sanctify. Same word as sanctuary. Set him apart as Lord in my heart. He is the reason you give as to why all the abuse in the world cannot destroy your hope. That God, in fact, in Christ, will someday make it plain even to your accusers. I do think Peter has the day of visitation in mind. That's a phrase he used in the earlier part of the writing. The coming judgment where he said, it was back in chapter 2 at verse 12, that we should keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, I believe it's saying, as they are held up before them by Christ himself, in the day, Peter says, of visitation. There's a judgment coming and every deed of every man will be exposed and only the believer's deeds that were wrought by the power of God's Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that was once persecuted and intimidated, will be held up as evidence. And in the light of that, I have to say, well, it's not a very spiritual term, but I kind of remember saying in my study, wow, what kind of awesome judgment is on its way? No wonder that Peter says at the end of verse 15, you see it there, to answer our critics, our persecutors, he says you better do it with gentleness and reverence. You see, because we know that short of repentance, their repentance, short of that, for which we ought to pray, God's fury is so great that we can afford to be gentle with the ignorant. In Peter's teaching on this, I sort of hear the echo from Golgotha. Father, forgive them. They're just so stupid. They know not what they do. And in light of the judgment that we know is coming, we best love our enemies. We best give an answer for the hope that is within us and tell everyone it's Christ that makes the difference. Now, I know this is some of the hardest work we will do in the course of our Christian life and of our sanctification. Encouragement to endure in the work of loving those who hate us, hate our deeds, and hate God, is to keep looking to Jesus, who endured our own injustices toward Him, Peter says, so that He could bring us to Himself. 
is this not exactly what he says, verse 18? For Christ also died for sins. Ours. Once and for all. The just for us. The unjust. So that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We're an extension of the redemptive work of Christ. As we respond as he responded. How did he respond? In the hour of his greatest passion, while plucking out his beard. And the scriptures say people with gnashed teeth hurling their abuses at the perfect son of God. The Bible says he opened not his mouth. And the next time he did speak was when he was fastened to the cross. And the seven things he uttered to the very people crucifying him was the message of the gospel of grace. He was giving the crucifying mob the reason for the hope that was in him. And as he looked beyond the cross, not taking into account, it says in Philippians, the shame of it. For the joy that was set before him, seeing us come to faith, to be part of his family, to experience with him, as Paul says, even the fellowship of his sufferings in a world that is no friend to God's grace. Oh, what a calling we have. I don't suggest it. I almost feel like going out and looking for some abuse just so I can practice responding in the very way that God in Christ responded to me when he opened my eyes to behold the Lamb of God, the Savior of my sins. I watched Poetic at the end of my study. Sticks and stones may break our bones Names may wound us deeply, but the worst that could ever happen could not compare with the stream of love unending that flows from Calvary. You see, God leads his dear children along, some through the waters, some through the floods, some through the fire can get hot. He leads all of us through his blood, some through great sorrow. But God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. 